Hi, I'm Graham Mack, and welcome to the Pod 20, the definitive countdown of the top 20 podcasts right now. On this week's show, Paul Blanchard talks about starting out in the PR game, some marketing ideas from the lads behind Over a Pint, Paul Barros from the Humorology podcast will tell us why humour is so important, and my special guest is Emily Strasser from The Bomb. I have a vivid childhood memory of visiting my grandmother's house near Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Above the bed where I slept hung a photo of my grandfather standing in front of a mushroom cloud. I'd stare at his image on my grandmother's wall for hours. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what it meant. I never met my grandfather. He died before I was born. But now I know what he did. Now I know what he helped to create. Last night's target for the first atomic bomb was the city of Hiroshima on the shores of the inland sea west of Kobe. My grandfather worked on the bomb that dropped on the city of Hiroshima 75 years ago. As I've grown older, I've tried to make sense of my grandfather's choices. I've tried to make sense of what he was involved with. And I'm still trying to make sense of what humanity unleashed when it dropped that bomb. description that I can come up with reminds me of years gone by when they used to pave the streets with tar, and that's exactly what the city of Hiroshima looked like. To understand, I've gone back to the beginning, back before Hiroshima and Nagasaki, before my grandfather got involved at Oak Ridge, and it led me to a fascinating guy, all but forgotten by history. Leo Szilard. Szilard. Szilard was just a hugely curious person. Leo Szilard. Szilard conceives the idea of a nuclear chain reaction. He's way ahead of, of a lot of people who didn't foresee the threat to the world community, the future of civilization that was unleashed. Szilard had a kind of allergy to authority figures. This man was the first to realize the potential of the nuclear chain reaction, the first to realize its destructive power. And having worked to unleash its potential, he then wanted more than anything to stop it. Was the bomb inevitable? Could somebody have stopped it? My name is Emily Strasser, and this is The Bomb from the BBC World Service. Meet Emily Strasser soon. The Pod 20 is heard on podcast radio on DAB in London, the home counties, Manchester and Glasgow, on demand in the USA at talkers.com, around the world, on multiple platforms and as a podcast itself. Let's get into the chart now. And at number 20, the High Performance Podcast with Jake Humphreys and Professor Damien Hughes. It's an intimate glimpse into the lives of high-achieving, successful individuals. Number 19, Power, the Maxwells. Yeah, we've all heard of Ghislaine Maxwell. In this podcast, find out more about her father, the media tycoon Robert Maxwell, and his rise from nothing to his fall from the deck of his superyacht under mysterious circumstances. 
Number 18, and that's why we drink. Murder and the paranormal finally meet. The world's a scary place, and that's why we drink. At 17, Media Masters with Paul Blanchard, who is one of Britain's best-known PR men. Paul, growing up, did you see yourself as a PR guru? No, I just didn't want a boss. Uh, My father uh, was and is an entrepreneur, and um, I always wanted to build up something for myself, and I hated the idea of sort of sitting down in a weekly review by someone, you know, monitoring my performance and all of that. I just hated that. So I I started um, a small business when I was 17, a computer business, and sold that in my mid-20s and then thought, you know, what do I want to do with myself? So I I picked politics, law, and PR. Then I I picked all three because I had a bit of money and I thought, well, let's see which one which one I lasted. Mm-hmm. Politics is about 12 years in and uh, I stood for Parliament in 2005 and was on all various boards and committees and everything. I mean, it was it was great, but, you know, I was a, I was and is a huge Blairite. So when, when Gordon took over, you know, we had no chance of lot. So that politics was the first to go. And I trained, I did a degree in law at night class, thought I might be a barrister, realised that, you know, I got my law degree, but I, I realised I didn't want to do that. And then I was left with sort of my day job, that uh, which was PR. And um, I'd gone into that because I in my first business, I couldn't afford to advertise it. So I started to sort of do PR stunts locally. You know, I think I bought a book called Do Your Own PR. It's probably still available. Mm-hmm. And it sort of sort of said, you know, if you've got a phone and a laptop and, you know, you've got a bit of grit, then you can, you, why bother paying for advertising? So I thought, well, I'll give myself, um, give myself a go at that and then never look back, really. So what kind of stuff were you doing when you started out your first PR stunts? Oh, God, we were, we were doing all kinds of things. I mean, I was trying to grow grow the business we were you know dressing as animals and various stunts and <laughs> yeah uh you know i had a, a hotel in york that i worked with and we did some on-air cookery in the um you know on their local radio station and uh, that worked incredibly well i mean now it's easy easy done you know lots of people cook on in podcasts and on radio but at the time it was fair you know the radio producer was like what that, that's not gonna work but um but yes yeah, so, i mean i grew it from there and um I thought London sort of beckoned after a few years, and I thought that's that's the pond I want to fish in. So I, I, I started doing um, sort of what I would call proper PR in London many, many years ago. And then within a year or so, I, I decided that I wanted – I was inspired by Alistair Campbell, actually, who I know reasonably well. And uh, I, was, I thought I want to be looking after chief executives and leaders of organizations and businesses and so on. So I, I didn't – I remember uh, – talking to my wife saying I wish there was a type of PR where you just do the leader of the business and you're not sort of churning out press releases for you know I I think the analogy I used was if you you know if you've own a tea bag company then i don't want to be putting out press releases saying we've got a new range of tea bags out i want to be looking after the he or you know the the, the leader of the business he or she that that wants to disrupt the industry or to get involved in politics or set up a family foundation or something that was the kind of thing that i wanted to do really and uh, and i just just created it out of thin air and um I thought I'd have four or five clients initially, but, you know, it's, I mean, it's gone, gone crazy. I've got about 20 at the moment. It's all worked out. Paul Blanchard, the host of Media Masters, which is at number 17 this week on the Pod 20. At number 16, Imposable with Logan Paul, the world's greatest, most thought-provoking, mentally stimulating podcast in the history of mankind, hosted by a bunch of idiots. At 15, The Mindset Mentor with Rob Dial, the podcast for you if you need motivation, direction and focus in life. 14, You're Dead to Me, the history podcast for people who don't like history. At 13, The Bomb, hosted by Emily Strasser. 
Where are you, Emily? I'm in my bedroom in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I've been to Minneapolis, Minnesota. Have you? Luckily, I, I was there in a June. Okay. But so, <laughs> yeah, I've heard everyone talked about how cold it is in the winter there. Yeah, June is beautiful. June's our best month. Yeah, I went to see the uh, the twins play the Brewers. Okay. While I was there, uh, okay. so it, was, it was it was quite exciting. It's a really good town, and it, you can tell it must be cold all there, there because in the downtown area, the the buildings are connected with walkways, so you don't have to go outside. <laughs> yep, you got the tunnels. Yeah, and but, we're in a polar vortex now, so it's extra. Is it extra. so? So, what's the weather like there right now? Um, I haven't checked this morning, but it's been getting down to the negative 30s with the wind chill. Okay. Uh, Fahrenheit. Fahrenheit, yeah, but still yeah. cold. Still cold, yeah. All right. Let's talk about your fabulous podcast called The Bomb. It's a, it's a series. It's quite an amazing thing. It's about the first atomic bomb, and it turns out that, Emily, you have a family connection to it. Yeah, that's right. So my, my grandfather... Um, was a chemist, kind of a mid-level chemist, who worked on enriching uranium for the first atomic bomb. So was he doing that at Los Alamos with all the others, or was that outside? Yeah, he was actually in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. So Los Alamos was one of three sort of secret cities that were built um, to help build the atomic bomb. Los Alamos was where sort of the most important scientists and the most famous people were, but um, in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, they enriched uranium, and in Hanford, Washington, they produced plutonium. It wasn't something that my family talked about all that much, but there was this photograph um, that I remember very distinctly from my childhood that hung above the bed in my grandmother's house where I would sleep when I visited her, and it showed my grandfather standing in front of a um, like a mushroom cloud, like a nuclear test blast. Um, I didn't I didn't really know what that what it was at the time. Um, my grandfather died before I was born, so it wasn't something I didn't know him. Um, and as I got older, I started to think about that photograph and wonder like, what it was all about. It's such a very strange thing <laughs> to see um, in a house and, and to have hanging above a child's bed. Now, the weird addendum to that is I remember that so well, I would have signed an affidavit about it, right? I would have said, this photograph exists exactly how I remember it. And it has since completely disappeared. We cannot find it in the family. So um, we do have photo. He did work on the atomic bomb and we do have photographs of him of atomic test blasts. But I'm not exactly sure what happened in my childhood memory, um, whether it just has been lost or whether I sort of put two things together. How old were you at the time then? Um. Let's see, that house, I mean, that house is still in the family. After my grandmother died, we kept it. Um, but I did. I only slept there probably till about age 10 or so. Um, and then, you know, it, people would rearrange photographs and take things down. And after my grandmother died, a lot of things were rearranged. So I can't say exactly when it disappeared. So your memory of this photo, he's actually, there's a mushroom cloud going on behind him and he's not standing in front of a poster of a mushroom. He's actually there at a test. Yeah. Well, and he did go to tests. Like I know that he went to tests, so it's possible. So, and those tests would have been, where, where would they have done them? Did they do them at yeah. Los Alamos then? 
Um, so they did them out in Nevada at the Nevada test site. This was after. So he worked on um, nuclear bombs like through the Cold oh, War. Oh, I see. Yeah, because they were the done. 80s, yeah. People in Vegas used to go and watch them, didn't they? Yeah. It was so, so it was, wild. Right. So he was, I see. So that was taken afterwards when he was, so he was still working on it after the bomb. He was part of it then. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. A lot of scientists left um, after the bomb either because there weren't as many jobs at first until the Cold War really ramped up. Um, some people had moral objections, um, but he, he stayed on, which is part of my mixed feelings about the whole thing. Yeah, I bet. More from Emily Strasser coming up. The bomb is at number 13 this week on the pod 20. At number 12, feel better, live more with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee. 11, Sword and Scale, the true crime podcast that delves into the worst of the worst and includes murder, rape, dismemberment and cannibalism. No crime is too brutal and no victim is too pure. The worst monsters are real. At 10, The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Number 9, Over a Pint with Chance Litchfield and Bobby Nangler. And you've got some branding ideas to show me, Bobby, over the magic of Zoom. Well, the first one's the beer, mate. I'm actually really excited to show you these. Yeah? So this uh, is a world so this exclusive. Is, this is what we've only teased on the Christmas episode. But So here's the beer, mate. This is uh, the beer, mate. It's got our logo on it. But on the other side... It's got the Carlin logo, but I've photoshopped it to say Karen. Oh, like, right. A, yeah. Right. So got a few different ones, like Chance holding one up. So what do you got there, one, Chance? You got, yeah, the, you got, got, got the Teller friend for the Stella logo, yeah. And yeah, what's the other logo. one? Sometimes men cry into the San Miguel. So these are just little things I create on Photoshop, but we wanted to get these printed out and then put them in pubs and like kind of camouflage them with actual beer mats. So when, when you got someone just picks the beer mat up, they just they just see it and they automatically realise it's for like men's mental health, but it's in a really subtle way because men's yeah. mental health is not something you'd really talk about in the pub. But like we want to create this awareness that you can talk about your feelings, so that these little beer mats are just like a play on uh, beer brands, and it just kind of creates the awareness. Really, you should talk to the breweries themselves because they might be keen to get involved in that. You never know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It'd oh, save, yeah. It'd save getting yeah. sued by them for, you know, stealing intellectual <laughs> property now that you've nicked their logos. Yeah. I mean, they'd, be, tried, they'd have to be, yeah. uh, they'd have to be rat bags to get uh, funny over something like that because you're trying to do something good. So I think you're on. Yeah, exactly. You're, yeah, you're exactly. going to be pretty safe, but you never know. There might be money in that for you. Uh, certainly, more publicity for the podcast. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, that's what we wanted. Line, really. Yeah, um, it is great that you two are doing this. It really is really good. And the fact that you are taking on the big issues, men's mental health. And in the chat, you go for what people are talking about. You're not, it's not like gossip and, you know. But it, having said that, it is fairly light. How do you find the balance then? Because it does sound like two blokes talking in a pub. Well, I mean, we find the balance is in just trying to keep it like there's no camera on us, essentially. Because there's been times where... For example, the actual when, the day we come up with the idea, we were just sat talking, just sat uh, having a pint, talking about things. And I think Bobby was just saying about listening to podcasts because we were talking about the fact there's no good new music to talk about, uh, I mean, to listen to. And we were getting bored of listening to the music we listened to. And Bob was yeah. saying, I listen to loads of podcasts all the time. And I was like, yeah, so do I. And then we were like, you know, sharing podcasts idea. And then we're like, you know, but I like the ones that are just plain. I don't like people where they're, 
they're talking and pr- I think it's because within radio as well, I like people that are really themselves. You can see who their character is on the radio. You can tell they're, they're all right and you, you might, and you find that you might get on with them if you knew them. So I was like, yeah, I love all the podcasts that are just playing and just easy to listen to. And I was like, you know, there, there needs to just be one where there's two people just being themselves and just not holding back and things like that, not being rude or anything like that because we do want people to like us. We don't want people to <laughs> hate you're us. You're pretty so. sweary though, it's got to be said, just if anybody's wondering, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. We've got yeah, A-levels of swearing. my mum and dad said, so. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, that's something that we need to work on, but it, 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 that's who we are. That's what we're like. Yeah. That's, that's what we're like, so we're being ourselves in that sense. <laughs> Well, that's what you got to do. It was it said, you got to be yourself because everyone else is taken. Over a pint with Chance Litchfield and Bobby Nangler, number nine this week on the Pod 20. At number eight, it's the Adam Buxton podcast. Adam's latest ramble chat is with the Canadian comedian Tony Law. At seven, Conan O'Brien needs a friend. Conan has never made a real and lasting friendship with any of his celebrity guests, so he started a podcast to do that. Number six, Freakonomics Radio. Discover the hidden side of everything with Stephen J. Dubner, the co-author of the Freakonomics books. Let's check in with my special guest this week. It's Emily Strasser from The Bomb. And Emily, you found out that your grandfather worked on the atomic bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima because there was a photo of him in your grandmother's house and he was standing in front of a mushroom cloud. Did you ask questions about that photo? Yeah, I mean, I started I started to ask after I like it was it was not until college that I started to wonder about it really, and and look and no one in the family talked about it. No, it was just kind of, I mean, it wasn't exactly covered up, right? It just wasn't. Nobody seemed to have much interest in it. It was like, oh yeah, oh yeah, you know, Grandpa George worked on worked on nuclear weapons, and that was all that I ever heard of it. And so I started to ask questions. And I started to research Oak Ridge, Tennessee, which again was this really wild place. So it was built in 1943 in total secrecy. It wasn't even listed on area maps of the time. And the vast majority of people who worked there, everyone from mid-level scientists like my grandfather to say janitors, bus drivers, I should say it was built not only for to house the laboratories, but all of the people needed to um, to clean the laboratories, to build the laboratories, all the people working in the laboratories, all of their families, the school teachers, the kids. So it was a real, there were 70,000 people living there at the height of the war effort. So it was this huge top secret facility and most of the people working there had no idea what they were doing. Right, so it was only the scientists that knew what they were actually working on. Everyone else just thought it was part of the war effort, a military research. Yeah, just just a war, just a good war job. Yeah, and even of the scientists, you know, only the top really had the whole picture. Right. So how did you then find out that he was a chemist and he was a big deal? Yeah, so some of it was like family, um, the family, what they were able to tell me. But I had to do a lot more digging um, talking to historians and eventually able, I was able to get some archival records of sort of what he did more specifically. I was, this was kind of a lucky research break, but I actually found somebody who worked in the same lab as him um, during the war. And so that was pretty incredible, was able to interview him before he died. And he was able to tell me exactly what they had been doing. And do you, do you know his level of involvement in it then? Yeah. So as far as I can figure, he was sort of a mid-level guy. He wasn't famous. He would later kind of become 
more of a manager and, um, you know, get to be up at, up at the higher echelons of plant management in the Cold War. But at that time, he was like a mid-level guy who did a good job, who had a science background and kind of rose to supervise a small lab and probably wasn't briefed on the whole story, but there was enough of the science out at the time that he may have been able to guess what yeah. he was doing. Wow. More from Emily Strasser next week. The podcast is called The Bomb. Back to the chart now, and we're into the top five. At number five, Crime Junkie. If you can never get enough of true crime, congratulations. You've found your people. At number four, Grounded with Louis Theroux. This week it's a bonus episode. Louis answers questions from his previous guests. Number three, the Humorology podcast with Paul Barros. Paul, do we take humour seriously enough? Oh, great question. And no, I think we don't take it seriously enough. I don't think uh, there is some fantastic research out there, which I've been going through for, for my new book. But I think humour is a superpower and should therefore be the, because it it is the ultimate bonding tool. It does break down barriers. It, it makes organisations much more perceptive, much more responsive. Um, but you're right. People don't take it seriously. People think that, oh, it's it's if we're in business, it's it's not professional for some reason. And people, I think, have a fear of not coming across properly serious. You know, um, I think that, yeah, that there is a real case for people taking it more seriously because it is probably the best tool you will ever have for changing people's perception of you and your company. And also changing the way teams behave. And so understanding that humor is, as I said, a, a, hu a superpower. I like to say in the, in the thing, you know, that what, what uh, humorology does is humorology puts the fun into business fundamentals. It increases the value of your laughing stock and puts a punchline back into your bottom line. But I really believe that. I believe that, that that actually, if if you don't get some humor and some lightness into your companies, what happens when you run get up against problems is you have nowhere to go. You haven't built a culture of lightness. Maybe your you bosses who can't laugh at, at themselves need a rethink in that because if you've created that culture well, you're also going to create a culture whereby you can't be creative or your creativity is stifled because when people are relaxed, it's been proven that their productivity goes up, their ability to be creative goes up and a happier workplace with more creativity, more productivity is surely what everybody wants. The podcast is called Humorology. Paul Barros, it's been fascinating talking to you. Thanks for your time today and continued success with it. What's next for you or have you got some big guests coming up that you want to plug? 
Well, I, uh, the guests I've got coming up, I've got John Sweeney, who did Panorama for years and years and years, who's a fascinating guest. Uh, Dilly Keene of Fascinating Aida, who writes the funniest and some of the rudest songs you will ever see. Look them up on YouTube. Um, Charlie Hansen, who is Ricky Gervais's producer, um, who um, has done all the recent Netflix stuff with Ricky. Um, Clive Ball's coming up. And I've got... A real coup, which is Dr. Richard Bandler, who de co-developed the whole field of neuro-linguistic programming coming up very soon. So please keep tuning in because we're going to have fascinating guests who I promise will also make you smile. The Humorology Podcast with Paul Barros is at number three this week. Number two, Rob Beckett and Josh Widdicombe's Lockdown Parenting Hell. It's parenting, just not as you know it. And at number one... Alan Carr's Life's a Beach. Alan's latest guest is Michael McIntyre. That's it for episode 43 of the Pod 20. Thanks to this week's guest pod stars, Emily Strasser, Paul Blanchard, Chance Litchfield, Bobby Nangler and Paul Barros. Next week, my special guest is Edward Hardy from The Hardy Report. Ed, you're a Brit, but your podcast is mainly about American politics. It is indeed. I really got into American politics sort of in the run up to uh, probably, well, I've been interested in politics since before the 2010 general election, but I got interested in US politics really and, and focused on that in the run up to the 2016 election in, in early 2015. And that just became, it's a fascinating process how it all works. There's so much to cover and talk about. And so I set up the podcast because I was I was tweeting and I was doing commentary on it. And I thought, why not interview these fascinating characters from candidates to people who are in positions of power at the time, officials, people who are reporting on it. So we've had senior White House correspondents give their take. And it's been a fascinating ride, really. And when I started it, I thought... The, what, all of this commentary, I thought, oh, this will only be br a brief period. We'll have Hillary Clinton and so on, like everyone else did. And then it was a wild uh, four years. And I thought, I'll launch the podcast, get to talk to the people on the ground and really understand what's going on. So that's really the basis for it. But it's been a, a fascinating few years. I think everyone can agree. Yeah, I, I know what it's like coming to... American politics and trying to work out how it all works. I learned the most about American politics and how it works by watching The West Wing. So, oh, I've watched that several times. It's a great show. Edward Hardy from The Hardy Report, my special guest next week on The Pod 20. And if you'd like to watch extended video chats with my guests, check them out on YouTube and subscribe to my YouTube channel. What will happen on the podcast radio chart next week? Will Alan Carr still be at the top of the chart? Will your favourite podcast be at number one? Find out with me, Graham Mack, and influence the chart by making a recommendation at thepodcastradio.co.uk. Faith in the news media has been challenged making it even harder to get stories told. The Friday Reporter podcast was created to help audiences better understand the media. 
by hosting journalists who will answer the questions to which we need answers. Join me every Friday to hear more.